This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with Brandon Bloom. How's it going, Brandon? Hi, how's it going? Good. So can you start by telling me what you're doing these days? Uh, What am I doing these days? I have been contracting with various different people on and off, but my 30-second life story, uh, I've been programming since 15 professionally. I did some time at Google, some time at Microsoft and Xbox. I had a startup out in Seattle, and then I sold that startup and then didn't wait around for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and decided I was going to take a bit of a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. So I moved out here to New York City. I've been working and not working for two and change years, Mm -hmm. which has been awesome. And if anybody can financially or emotionally afford a sabbatical of that sort of duration, I really, really recommend it. It's been really enjoyable to kind of just tinker on whatever I wanted to tinker on for a while. Yeah. And so uh, most recently, I've been working part time uh, for Circle CI, but I've had a whole bunch of different uh, clients in the past. And I think the most major project I've done since consulting was with code.org, which was super exciting to work on their their hour of code campaign. Yeah, totally. So this has been sort of two years where you're doing roughly part-time work, it sounds like? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. That's awesome. That sounds like uh, you've achieved a nice balance there. Is this something that you think is going to like end or is this kind of like the new... I'd love to do it for a startup at some point in the not too distant future. Mm -hmm. To go back to full-time then? Yeah, the the real challenge for me startup wise is I've basically decided that I, you know, I, I never really was interested in consumer software. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really decided that what makes me happy is oddly, deeply, weirdly technical stuff. Mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out how to do that and make a business out of it is difficult. And since I planned my life around not having to work for somebody else for a while, mm-hmm. um, I was kind of lucky enough to sit and wait for something good to come to me. And I, I'm beginning to think I've got something that I can maybe turn into a business at some point. Hmm. But I don't really know. It's, it's not 100% clear right, how I'm going to monetize and whether or not I'm going to raise capital and who I'm going to hire, if I can hire anybody at all, because that's freaking impossible these days. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm not in a rush, which, like I said, if you can afford to not be in a rush just in life, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> highly, highly recommend it. Yeah. Although I watch the bank account shrinking and it scares me, but, you know. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, I, I, like, reading your blog and seeing the kind of stuff you're, you're putting out on GitHub, it's definitely towards the esoteric side, I guess. Like, like a data flow solver, which is Qplan for closure. Like, it is what? It's, it's stuff that's sort of pretty, <laughs> pretty far out on, on, the, on the edges of, like, computer science and programming, it seems like. It, it turns out there's actually a narrative to like all the crazy weird things I've done. Mm-hmm. Like they're all really connected. So, so sort like one of the things I'm really interested in is this idea that something I say to people sometimes is I say browsers are crappy IDEs and IDEs are crappy operating systems, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in this idea of like what would it look like if you had a really truly modern operating system and sort of the same mental model of like the small talks and list machines. Mm-hmm. And people a lot of times they lament the fact that we're not all programming list machines. And in reality, technology's come a long way and you can go buy a list machine for a couple hundred bucks. It's called Mathematica. Right, And you can experience what that's like. And in reality, that dream has missed what's actually happened technology-wise, which has been 
more of a social revolution. And I don't mean that in the sense of social in terms of Facebook. I mean, in the sense like social technologies, like we invented the wiki, right? That Mm -hmm. happened since the list machine. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really interested in, in what would a system look like that was kind of an end to end reimagination of computation and computers that embrace these technologies. And so I thought that UI and display tech is really, really, really important at kind of the fundamental level of a system. And so I spent a lot of time exploring user interface technologies. And that's sort of how I kind of stumbled upon React and started pounding the React drum. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a lot of conversations with guys over at the kitchen table coders with David Nolan and a bunch of other folks in Brooklyn there. Mm -hmm are where a lot of the the functional UI display tech ideas I've been having have kind of just wound into conversation with those guys and a few other folks. Mm-hmm. And so if you go look at some of the things I've worked on, a lot of them are not necessarily UI related, but they're they're sort of weird edges of computer science glued together around that idea. And I can actually like point to any project and be like, well, here's the inspiration for it and here's why I was tinkering on it. And here's how I fit in. I think it fits in. Mm-hmm. And I've got a directory of another hundred projects or so I've never published that are along the same sort of thoughts. Interesting. There seems to be like this sort of a divide among people that release stuff prolifically versus not. Like you seem to be on the side of putting out a lot of stuff out there, and it sounds like there's even more that doesn't make it through that cut. Like, is this your passion and hobby basically all the time? You're just constantly doing this stuff. So I'm switching more back towards execute mode, but for the last, for about a year and change of my sabbatical, so to speak, I was just coding up things. Um, I, you know, one of the things I learned in taking this time was that sometimes you just got to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And the ones that wind up on GitHub are the ones that stick just a little bit, mm-hmm. or, you know, a few of them have, have been real projects. So I know like FIP, I wrote a pretty printer, which was not my intention when I started that project. I would have never imagined I would have written a pretty printer. Mm-hmm. But FIP just was so awesome that like when I saw how fast it was working that I just had to polish it and ship it. Mm. And now uh, a guy by the name of, I believe, Greg Look made a plugin for NREPL so that I can eval with FIP and pretty print everything all the time. And so like that was just a random four or five day project that I actually like polished for real for like on and off for a while. Mm-hmm. And I use it every single day now. Mm. And so some of the projects are inherent parts of my workflow, and some of the projects are just like, well, this one people can play with. Right. And then the rest are just like, this one never worked at all. I, I had a beer and typed some code and nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, th- I think people need to experiment more. Uh, people see too much code that's like finished. Mm-hmm. And code doesn't like get birthed into the universe finished. For sure. Well, there's an interesting sort of duality there, which is there's things that you extract from real work, which are, are not finished, but are, are in fact like functional because they're already doing things for you and you just pull them out and then polish them and release them. And then there's the sort of exploratory playing around. Let me see what happens with this and, and why not put it out there, too. Yeah. And I think people have a responsibility, though, to like write that in the readme. Totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's too many toys that like accidentally got popular. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Was, uh, like in the readme for uh, David Nolan's Ohm library, it says, this is alpha software and I don't even want pull requests right now. Right. Like, I'm just figuring stuff out. So like you can use this and people are. And like I know I just learned today that like CircleCI is front end is in fact like using Ohm. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, uh, which is a, a, a wrapper for React in ClojureScript for people that don't know. Um, right. But he's done the responsible disclosure of like, by the way, this is like the early sketches of an idea. The, the thing is, is that David amazes me because that guy, like, 
like I've written a lot of random little code things, but he's prolific and he's fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sean Grove as well, who's been tweeting a bunch now about his you know vector graphics program he's tinkering with in Ohm. I mean, those two guys, they produce a ton of code really quickly. And like I say, I have 100 projects that are projects, like in quotes. Mm-hmm. Some of them are just like comments. Some of them don't compile. Some of them don't run. Mm-hmm. Some of them are just like 12 different languages, none of which have ever been evaluated. Right? Like sometimes I'm just tinkering. And like you like start typing. You're like, oh, now I understand it. And now I'm no longer interested in this project. Yeah, yeah. Like I learned what I needed to learn from it. I'm not going to actually ship a library that does this dopey thing. So I'm jealous of those guys who can ship things to the internet on GitHub and they like take off and they're exciting and people use them. But I'm also like glad that I haven't reached, you know, David's level of awareness to some degree because now people use his stuff and he has to maintain it. Right. Right. And so he has an obligation to a community that, that I have escaped thus far. Yeah, totally. The things I've tinkered with. So what are you, what kind of languages are you using these days? I do most of my stuff. uh, Like most of the code that I actually run is in Clojure. Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm thinking, I, I use Mathematica a lot. Hmm. Kovas, who wrote Session, is uh, also hangs out uh, in Brooklyn. There were those guys. You know, he used to work for Wolfram, and he introduced me to Mathematica. And I had used it in college, sort of as a glorified graphing calculator. Mm-hmm. But I've fallen in love with it the last like two years. I use it every day. Wh- it's wh- great. Why? What's the pitch for that? I'm not that familiar with it. So it's a term rewriting language. It's not a functional language. Term rewriting language. Okay. Yeah. So the primary unit of abstraction is the expression, which is weird because it's not parameterized. Like you, you write a rule, which has a left-hand side that's a pattern and a right-hand side that's what the pattern gets rewritten to. Mm-hmm. And you can use them in a higher order way. You can pass around rules as data. And even though the language since version one in the 80s has had lambdas, right – it's it's not how you usually program. You usually program by re- writing rewrite rules. Hmm. And what's interesting about that is that when you when you write a when you write like you talk about like dynamic typing and static typing, and people talk about like oh static typing requires I have to think more up front because I got to figure out what the type is. And so before I write a function, I need to know what the type signature is, right? Mm-hmm. So in a dynamic environment, you just need to know what arguments you have, not necessarily what types they are. In a term rewriting environment, you don't even need to know what the arguments are. You just write an expression, and you can parameterize it, like, after the fact. Hmm. So you can just type a bunch of stuff and then massage it and just abstract it later if you want. And so it's very concrete out of the box. Like, you, you always have data. But the flip side of that is it's very easy to write programs that are only correct for the most recent expression you evaluated. Right? Like, it's very easy to write programs that just break. Hmm. <laughs> Because it's interactive, and it's only really designed to be interactive. Yeah. And you need to be really, really aware of all the details of the system to actually write anything that is reliable. Uh-huh. But that's nice because you don't have to get it right. Like you can, you can think and you can use the computer as a tool to help you think without it imposing structure on you, without it forcing correctness or reproducibility on you. Hmm. And you'd be crazy to try to produce something highly reproducible in that environment. And that's okay. That's interesting. It, it, I'm, I'm sort of having trouble picturing what that would like, what this looks like to actually use. But I'm intrigued by how weird it sounds. Like I like using a new thing that's like make, that lets me think in a different way. Yeah, it, it takes some getting used to, and and it's a really complex language. It has like a, like the evaluation rules are crazy, 
right? Like you look at like a typical modern functional programming language and it's got the basic lambda calculus rules and it's got numbers and symbols and a few other basic things. And it's like the, the semantics fit on a page or two. With Mathematica, you can read the docs for a lifetime and like never realize like, oh, there's another crazy evaluation control thing. And, and it's kind of funny because if you just don't care about performance and you try to write functionally pure code without side effects, then it doesn't matter if something gets evaluated once or five times or never or in different order. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And so having tons of complicated evaluation rules are okay. And so there's like six different types of quoting Right, right. Like a typical list, you have like quote, and then you have syntax quote. Hmm. But syntax quote also has like unquote. It also has like unquote splicing. Well, Mathematica has hold and defer and like release hold and and unevaluated and like hold head and hold first and like all these crazy different quoting constructs that you'll never remember how they all work. Hmm. But if you get an answer out and you look at it, you're like, yeah, that looks right. Then it doesn't matter. Like that's all it's for, and it's great for that. Huh. So what kind of tasks are you using this for? I write toy interpreters in it sometimes. Like uh, I, I'm tinkering, like I said, I was tinkering on like what it would look like to have a end-to-end operating system kind of thing. And I was like, all right, well, it needs a language, right? And so, and so I've been experimenting with semantics for languages. And you can write something that looks like the operational semantics in a functional programming paper, right? And it fits on a slide. It's, it's like a little square, you can write something approximating that in Mathematica, and it'll be slow as hell, but it'll work, huh. right? And so, and so you can experiment so quickly. And, I, and, I, and for, like, day-to-day use, I use it for simplifying Boolean expressions constantly, right? Like, you just type in your expression that you're, like, you have some crazy if, and, else, not expression. You yep. just paste it in. Like, just cut and paste the code and massage it into Mathematica syntax and hit enter, and like wrap the whole thing in simplify and it gives you the reduced expression. Huh. No, that sounds cool. Like being able to do simple things like that on a whim, like learning the basics of it is just so convenient. Hmm. And I guess I guess just because it's not a production language, right? And because of, of the fact that you can there are no wrong inputs really. It's like really hard to throw an exception. Mm-hmm. Like it's like if something doesn't happen, it just stops evaluating and shows you intermediate results. Huh. Right? Which can also be a problem because you make a typo and then you get this gigantic result out. And so I, I don't know. I just I want tools that scale the spectrum. I want to be able to to think and I want to be able to solve real problems, right? Like this is like this is why I prefer linters over type checkers, right? Like I want to be able to say, and now we're going to production. Make sure this thing doesn't crash. Right. Can you can you expand on that? The linters versus type checkers idea. Yeah. So I wrote about that on my blog a little while ago, mm-hmm. and I upset some static type enthusiasts and. And don't get me wrong, I, I think that it's good that people are doing the type system research, and I think that if you're going to build a linter, the language should be co-designed with a type system to go with its linter. I just don't want it type-checked while I'm working, right? And, like, you know, if you look at, like, Haskell now, they've got type holes or whatever it is, right? Which is sort of, they, they start with the static world and work back towards the dynamic world, where, like, ah, oh, you don't have to get all the types right, put a type hole in. But I, I don't know which way you, you start one way and work the other, I just know that I want the spectrum to be bigger, Hmm. I just know that I want to be able to use tools for a wider range of tasks. I want to be able to to think in those tools, and I want to be able to work in those tools, and I want to be able to verify in those tools. Because, like, right now I have to use so many different things for so many different tasks, and they just don't cooperate, right? And hmm. like, what, like, what are you referring to there? Like, if I write something in Mathematica, now I'm like, okay, now I want to type check it. Yeah. 
Well, okay, step one, write a type checker. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, okay, well, now I want it to run faster. So like I'll copy it into Clojure. So, so Clojure is actually really good at this. And, and Paul Graham has said this about Common Lisp. He said Lisp is two languages. It's a language for writing programs fast, and it's a language for writing fast programs. Hmm. And I want more tools like that, right? In Clojure, I can write the goofiest stuff with maps and vectors and whatever, and then get it working, and then go add some type hints, go add some custom data structures, and then massage the code to be faster. Mm-hmm. And you can get near Java performance with like a 10, 20% code size increase at the cost of flexibility. And, and I want that. I want to be able to make that cost trade off, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I want. Gotcha. Uh, I want to ask you about another uh, blog post you wrote about, uh, and the title was Trivial Cycles in OO. Sure. So yeah. your first sentence is, I'm not against objects. I'm against programming in a style oriented by objects. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. There's too many objects. <laughs> uh, so in, in sort of my own little personal metaphysics of the way I think about computers, right, is I, I sort of think about closed systems and open systems sort of kind of from physics, right, where you've got a closed system that is not context sensitive. It doesn't talk to the outside world. It's a sort of referentially transparent, functionally pure kind of thing. And when you learn physics and you learn about closed systems and you talk about, like, oh, you put a block on an incline, you measure the, the friction, like, you're not thinking about wind resistance and drag and quantum effects. And you're, you're, you're working at a higher level model that doesn't model the, the individual little details. Mm-hmm. And you're working at a model that doesn't account for outside influences. Right. It doesn't mean those things exist. It means that you've decided you're going to ignore them. They're negligible. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing happens in programming. And when you talk about objects, it's great for encapsulating mutable state. But if you pick a model that is a closed system, it's easier to reason about. And so inside an object, you have a closed system. Hmm. But between objects, you've got many communicating closed systems. Right. And so you're creating lots of different layers where you have to think about the boundaries between the world inside an object and the world outside an object. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to close a system, an object's great for that, but it's better to instead have primitives that compose, like Newton's laws, like all, you can, you can have many different bodies acting together, and they all respect Newton's laws without having to account for quantum mechanics below Newton's laws, or for, without having to account for environmental effects like air resistance and things like that, and thermodynamics outside the rigid bodies. Mm-hmm. And so the object-oriented model is great for building those boundaries, uh, for encapsulating mutable state. Mm-hmm. But it creates this illusion that state's local to an object. And in reality, all state is outside your system, and you're just trying to tame it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, all your state's external. Like, it's the environment you live in, right? Your state is, is the big old chunk of memory. And so, and so if you design your entire program in terms of objects... You're paying a complexity cost that you just don't have to pay, but that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Like, it's a good idea to encapsulate state sometimes, mm-hmm. and like, not all the time. So you'd rather reach for more of a functional style, then, on, in general? Yeah, generally, yeah, but I'm, I'm not a purist at all. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, I'm just not interested in, like, monads, right? Like, I understand them, I grok them, I've played with them, I've written some Haskell. I just don't care. It's just, it's just a pain in my butt, right? Like, it's like... No, sometimes my program does stuff, and I want to reason about that without having to, like, thread dynamically through my program, right? Like, like a monad's poisonous in the same sense as exceptions are, right? And in fact, they're equivalent, right? Like, 
I'm really interested in, in, this, in this notion of extensible effects. There's a cool language called uh, EFF. It's a conservative OCaml extension that has a programmable effect system. And so what I mean by that is if you've ever used, and I mean, Idris is getting an effect system and people have done effect systems in Haskell. And, and if you've ever used exception handling, right, it's this notion of I throw an exception and I catch it somewhere else. Uh, and if you ever use Java or C++ C++'s checked exceptions and you have like this function throws or whatever exception, you know that that exception poisons every call in the graph. And you've got to add that parameter or that throws clause to every single argument. And that's, that's what monads are doing. And whether there's monads under the hood, I don't want to have to like thread that argument through. And ha- Haskell gets away from the problem in some ways like by, by using uh, currying aggressively and putting the IO monad at the end or by having laziness and letting you throw values around. But, but it's really like you're playing this game where I have to track my effect on every function. And in reality, it's like my program may just have an effect everywhere. Right, like what the like program's job in life is to have an, an effect, hmm. and so I want the option to track the effect everywhere if that's rare and unusual. But I want to like also not have to have the obligation to track the effect everywhere hmm. if that's inherent to the problem. And so including effects in your types is paying a syntactic cost for for a cross cutting concern, and I don't want to pay that cost. Sometimes, and I do want to pay that cost other times. Hmm. So you may be seeing a trend. Yes, I was just <laughs> going to say. I feel like I'm getting this. The spectrum trend is happening. Yeah, a lot. So that's that's just sort of like you get these 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 holy wars, right? Like even even Vim and Emacs, right? Like you get some holy war between editors, mm-hmm. and it's it's a spectrum, right? Yeah. And and I, I want to be able to choose. I think that's uh, yeah. People don't get excited about spectrums. And trade-offs. I'm totally excited about spectrums. Yeah, that, that, clearly. <laughs> but I think people naturally want to take sides. I think it's like a really human impulse where it's like, no, Vim instead of Emacs, or, you know, no, no side effects versus yes side effects. Exactly. I guess the, the spectrum thing, I think, is pretty, sounds pretty pragmatic, though. Yeah, it, it, can, it can hurt you, though, because did you even pick the right spectrum to, like, waste your time thinking about? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's nice because if you pick a firm camp, Right. Like if you you say, no, we're going to do functional purity, we're going to do, you know, type safe as as a like strict guide. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you follow the works of guys like Simon Peyton Jones. They do incredible research and it's extremist oriented programming. Mm-hmm. I think somebody's called it once. And I, I think that's great for research. And I think, though, but if you look at all the work that those guys did on Haskell and on GHC and you go look at the compiler and the internals, like there's a lot of cheating going on. Right? They're like, and eh, we'll use unsafe I.O. And that's okay because they understand it's a spectrum and they understand that to solve one problem, they have to compromise on another problem and they can always come back and solve that other problem later. So the problem is, is that people take sides and they get tribal and they say, I'm in this camp or I'm in that camp. Mm-hmm. And, and I do it to an extent too, but sometimes I do it just kind of like to troll. I'm like, I like, I like to post things about problems with static languages because I, I, I do honestly believe that it's better to start dynamic and to work towards static than it is to start static and work towards dynamic. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's just my own personal style. Mm-hmm. And I get it if you work the other way, right? And the thing is that we have to work together. And so that, that harkens back to what I was saying about like, well, what happened since the list machine? Well, we invented the, whisk, the wiki and we invented GitHub, right? And like GitHub's every bit as important as a social, as a, as a technology as Git, 
Mm. And so I want to have people with different styles on different ends of the spectrum collaborate. And so that's sort of where my interest is, right? Yeah. It's, I wonder if, uh, if anyone actually has these extremist views or everyone is just kind of trolling each other. <laughs> I don't know. Like, do, do, I think some of the people have to have the extremist views. Yeah, I, no, I think there, there are some people that are, definitely feel that way. But they're good for goal. Like those people are good as goalposts, right? Mm. Like I'm glad uh, RMS exists, right? <laughs> yes. Like, like it's useful that the Free Software Foundation is fighting for us. I think that they're nuts, but I'm glad they're nuts. Right. right? Like, like you, you need the goalpost, I think. Yeah. I'm glad you're excited about that. <laughs> That's cool. So can you talk about some of the code.org stuff you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so code.org is this awesome charity. They're out in Seattle. Uh, it's founded by a guy by the name of Hadi Partovi. They're trying to get uh, K-12 curriculums in the U.S. and around the world to include computer science. Okay. And uh, I mean computer science. I don't mean coding. I don't mean everybody learn JavaScript and CSS. I mean that they want to teach people computer science. Code.org is doing some really awesome work in collaboration with a whole bunch of different organizations, a whole, uh, you know, both across the technology industry and education in politics and lobbying, and they're, they're doing a great job affecting policy change to get computer science added to K-12 curriculums. Hmm. And I don't know the current stats now, but I think it's like 2 billion lines of code written on Code.org's drag-and-drop programming oh, right. process, which is being used in curriculums all across the world, mm-hmm. which I was involved in helping build for the Hour of Code campaign last year. And it's just, it's just been incredible to watch that organization really get kids excited about math and science and computers at young ages. And uh, it's it's super great organization. Hmm. So it's interesting that you said, you know, learning computer science as opposed to learning a particular language or something like that. I sometimes struggle with that idea myself because I studied computer science uh, at college for a while and learned some useful things, but ultimately not a lot of not useful things. So are you talking about like academic stuff like yes. you learned like what an ll1 parser was exactly like, yeah like a theory of computation and things yeah, like that so a lot of people you know they look at a comp side paper and they see this giant blob of math right mm-hmm. and i read a ton of papers and i just skip that hmm. like sometimes i go back and read it but computer science is not about that i mean some people think it is some people would argue it is it is to the extent that you need to do that sort of rigor to get published and get through peer review but at the end of the day it's thinking analytically um, and so the skills we want to teach kids are like, okay, like think procedurally. Like how do you actually rigorously solve a problem mm. step by step? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why you had logo, like turtle graphics and stuff. And in between all the actual programming, there's like like a, Code.org has teachers that they work with that actually build curriculum. That They have like printouts and handouts and topics and tasks you can have. Like have all the kids stand in a line, right? And people learn skills for solving problems. And when I say computer science, I'm talking about the thought process more than I am about which crazy algorithm was invented in what year that has what runtime. And, and like, yeah, it's important you know your big O notation, but like, let's be honest, the exponential algorithm for n equals 7 is probably fine. Yeah. So like, I don't think that you need to be a world-class comp sci expert. I think you need to have some appreciation for... The, the not necessarily the rigor, but the like the process, right? I gotcha. The way of thinking. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's also an artistic exercise, right? So Code.org has a a turtle graphics-like component in their system, Mm -hmm. and you can share your drawings you've made. And so some of the kids spend hours just drawing stuff. Um, and, and that's great. If, if it turns out, uh, I mean, so the MIT people know this with Scratch, right? Like, Scratch has is, is got too many bells and whistles, especially for younger kids, um, which is one of the reasons Code.org built their own. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Scratch, like, a lot of kids just get hooked on the drawing part of it, the animating, the storytelling part of it. And, and that's great, too. If you don't learn computer science, but you learn, like, you learn the art aspect of it, mm. that's had a positive impact, right? Damn it, they're learning the wrong thing. We've got to stop them. No, but you, you, you can't act that way. Like, it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that there's a spectrum involved here. Yeah, there, there is, yes. That's surprising. <laughs> I, I think, I think I've, I've drilled that point home. understand. <laughs> the listeners understand. I'll... Cool. Uh, so what else should we talk about? I don't know. Um, what else are you really into? Well, so I had a startup. I'm really interested in the startup world, businesses and, and organizations and like solving problems and making things for actual people. And It's interesting that you said earlier that you... I feel your problem, which is like you really love interesting technical challenges and kind of like diving in deep into those things. But the question is like, how does this make money or like actually yes. be useful for people? <laughs> and that's like kind of like an interesting conundrum to be in. Right, but but I but I care about things being useful to people. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I don't want to just make tech for the sake of tech. Sure. Yeah. The problem is, is that I want to make tech for the sake of me being happy while I'm doing stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. But, but so if you ship things, like some people just want to ship stuff. Some people just love shipping. Ship, ship, ship. They love the reaction, the feedback. And for me, I, I enjoy that. But I like making stuff more than I like shipping stuff. Hmm. But you can't survive on that. Right. And it's funny because it's gotten so much che- cheaper to run a startup. Mm-hmm. But that's ca- that caused a bit of a problem because... Fewer people are investing in infrastructure. Fewer people are investing in, like, bigger, harder problems. Hmm. Like, every now and again, you see some startups that are doing real technically difficult things. But, like, sort of the minimal viable product has made it a little bit harder for researchy sort of stuff to get funded. And so, like I said, I, I, you know, I, I was listening to your, your podcast with Chris Granger a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a bit envious that he was able to get funded for such a crazy adventure. But he kind of cheated a little bit with Kickstarter, which is great that that exists. And it's sort of problematic in that, like, now he has people he needs to not necessarily impress or report to or – but, like, there's, there's a feeling of obligation. Whether or not your investor says to you, like, I don't care if you lose my money. Go take a moonshot, right? Like, there's still this, this sense of people are depending on me. People right. have invested in me emotionally, financially. And it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder to get people to make bigger bets Hmm. Um, because like lots of smaller bets tend to pay off in the, in the market now. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to be in a situation where I raise one or two years of seed funding and then I go and build something that's promising technically that has a, a real market could potentially make lots of money. And then one year into it, having all my best people be scrambling to raise funds again. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm struggling to address that problem. Like, I don't know how to do it, right? Mm. And, I, and I, it's unfortunate that, you know, you hear about all these businesses that were building physical machines in the Boston area, right? Mm-hmm. right? Like at some point in the history of, of the software industry and the, the computer industry, and you don't hear about that as much. And I don't know if it's because it's just not as attractive, you know, for TechCrunch to write about. Right. Or if it's being funded less, like I don't, I just, but I've, I've been in the tech startup world for a while and I don't come across it as much. 
So maybe I'm just not looking in the right place. I just I just don't know. Aren't you kind of doing this now though? Like you figured out a way to work on these things that are interesting to but you. It, but it's just me, right? Yeah. And I, I get a little bit of time to spend with smart people who have flexible working hours or are, are financially secure and can take time to hang out on a Tuesday and hack with me. Yep. But it's it's so hard to convince somebody to be like, you know what? I don't need to get paid for two years. I'll sit with you and four other guys who are also not getting paid for two years and invent things. Yeah. Fair enough. That that does sound like a hard sales pitch. Yeah, it's it's really difficult. And so trying to figure out something that can be self sustaining mm-hmm. is the best I've got as an idea now. So I'm I'm searching for ideas and and businesses that are are stepping stones that can maybe pay the bills in six months to a year, can start generating revenue, can pay my salary, maybe one or two others, and bootstrap a business. Mm-hmm. Maybe raise finance, like may raise venture capital after it's de-risked where somebody's like, yeah, I'll give you X million dollars to go take a run at this. But I, I mean, the, the hundred grand for a seed investment and maybe a million bucks follow on if you get lucky on a YC fundraise or whatever it is, is just not attractive to me. It seems intuitively like this should work, right? Like if you have such advanced technology, that should be an advantage for some sort of business, right? Right, but then, but then you have a sales problem, right? Like you build something incredible and now you can go out and sell it. Yeah, and the, the people who build great tech are not the people who sell it, like for sure, necessarily. For sure. And so, so you need a really weird person to run that organization. Yeah, you need somebody who can manage the tech and who can manage the business and enjoys both. Yeah, and it's very difficult. And they don't have to be the best tech people, and they don't have to be the best business people. They just need to be able to straddle that world. Right. And those people are really rare. They're basically non-existent, right? Like as far as anyone else is concerned, because the people like, like I like to think maybe I'm that person, mm-hmm. but everybody like pictures themselves as like the one guy who can do it, right? Right, and then you talk to somebody else who also thinks they're the one guy who can do it, and they don't want to come work for you, right? Because they're like, no, no, I'm the one guy who can do it, and you need that crazy egomaniacal personality to set aside that little inner voice that tells you it's impossible, right? For years. For years. So it's it's so hard to get people like that together under the leadership of somebody who is not going to be an egomaniac and or can not be an egomaniac to the detriment of their business, mm-hmm. can manage the technology, can manage the business, can bootstrap a company. And it happens, but it's rare and it's hard. And things like Y Combinator and Techstars have, have done a great job of increasing the success rate for two dudes and a couple laptops. Mm-hmm. But I want to figure out like is it possible to increase the success rate for meaningful fundamentals right right um i don't know i don't know the answer to that question Hmm. right so and the short-term answer then is consulting basically which is so soul-sucking right like so it's actually been great i've I've had to work for some really great uh companies Mm -hmm. and i've had the luxury of turning down not great projects and you know it's one of these things where it's like great i can i can work part-time and I don't hate myself until like three o'clock on the last day of my work week, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, is like the highest compliment I can give to any consulting gig, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you figure it out. <laughs> I, I, th- I, I wish the world were more set up so that doing what you want to do is, was easier. Like we had more sort of like patrons of the arts who would just like pay people to like go invent cool stuff and work on interesting problems. Like, yeah, how great would that be if people just like went around commissioning like CompSci research? Like, yeah. like, I want you to build a sweet website. Here's a couple million bucks. Like, go hire some people. Right. I know nothing about this, but I'm interested in its success in general. So why don't you go do it? Yeah, like if, if I had a few million bucks, I'd do that, mm-hmm. right? Like, like if I could just like 
peruse GitHub and be like, this dude, this dude needs a team. This dude needs a rocket, like, and go commission. Mm-hmm. I'd love for that to happen. I don't know why anybody doesn't do that. Surely there's some geek somewhere with, like, PayPal money. Oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> Guys right. like Elon Musk, right? <laughs> like, yep, sure. We need more of that. We need, we, we need more Tony Starks, right? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> or even if you did it in a small scale, like, say we, like, had basic income type thing in the country where it's just, like, everyone has their living expenses pretty much paid for. So that you could Fantastic. gather a group together and say, okay, we can all spend two years on something. And our, our, our only hope is that giant robots smashing into each other will eventually make that a necessity. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. With any luck. It's going to be real sad, the economic downturn, when, when robots really do do everything. Right. But if it's that, maybe we'll actually get the idea through our head that not everybody needs to work 60 hours a week. Yep. Right, so, it, could happen. Uh, it could happen. Yeah, maybe in our lifetimes, I, I, I'm not gonna wait for it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and force something to happen. We'll see. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a really good place to wrap up. Awesome. Cool. But before we go, if there are yes. anybody <laughs> that has a few million bucks and want to invest those strings in in my crazy rambling inventions and experiments, I please contact me. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll we'll leave that that plug in there. That'll be your plug for the show. Excellent. Awesome. Cool. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 115. Thanks for listening. 